My name is Brian. I'm the pastor of Family Ministries, and I just am really looking forward to the chance uh, to be with you wherever you may be. And I'm very much looking forward to kicking off a brand new series here on Palm Sunday called Ignite. Now, I know that we're just beginning to really get into kind of spring fever, but as a habit of mine, I want to take us back to a time in my life, a seemingly ordinary day last fall. It was nice. It was a warm, bright morning. I got up with the family, ate breakfast, got ready, headed into the office, and everything was going, you know, similarly to every other day when all of a sudden I got a text message that would forever change my life. It was a text message from my wife, Becca, and it said, I think there's something in the basement. Now, you should know that a thing about this basement is it's not accessible from inside the house. The only access to it is around back uh, from the outside. So whatever was in the basement that Becca thought, it was at least contained to the basement. So I immediately called Becca to put me on speaker, and sure enough, whatever broke into our basement was making quite the noise. We could hear crashing and banging around, and it was seemingly wrecking havoc everywhere underneath the floor. And so I ran to my car, and I did exactly the speed limit on the way home, Once I arrived, Becca and my three-year-old son, Charlie, met me outside, and so together as a family unit, we went downstairs around the back to the access door, and we put our ears against it, and sure enough, we could hear the banging and the clattering and the noise, but at the sound of the doorknob turning, the click, all of a sudden the noise stopped. So we opened the door, silence. We walk in, and we're peering around this kind of darkly lit basement, and I think this clip here perfectly sums up what happens next. This is exactly what happened, except for one thing. I was every character in that movie. In the presence of the scurrying squirrel in my basement, uh, all three of us who were down there had a different reaction to it. My reaction to the presence of the squirrel was to freak out. I pushed Becca aside. I hurtled over my three-year-old, and I booked it out the back into the lawn. I couldn't help it. That was my reaction to the presence of squirrel. Becca, on the other hand, was like a superhero. As the dust settled from my, you know, early departure, I peered back in, and I could see Becca now wielding a leaf rake. And she was tiptoeing around the basement in an attempt to gently guide the squirrel out of the door that I just booked it out of. In the uh, the presence of the squirrel, it was equal for both Becca and I in that basement. However, our reactions, they were the exact opposite. My reaction to the presence of the squirrel was to flee in panic and terror, while Becca's was to bravely stand and take action. Today is Palm Sunday, a very important date in church history because it is on this day that we remember the moment that Jesus ignites a series of events that last for the duration of the week. And some events that happen in this time is the Last Supper with his disciples. There's Good Friday, Jesus' crucifixion, and takes us into Easter for the resurrection. And we remember this week as Passion Week, or we call it Holy Week. And as we do so this morning, as we investigate the events of Palm Sunday together, it is my hope that as we go along, we will contemplate kind of this big idea, this question, if you will, and that is this. The presence of God is among us. What is our reaction to him? The presence of God is among us. What is our reaction to him? As the events of Passion Week got underway, it's important to understand that the presence of Jesus Christ in Israel was inescapable. Everyone had at least heard about this Jesus of Nazareth and the miraculous things that he had done and the wonderful things that he was saying. Jesus was real and present in the lives of these Israelites. And similarly, in light of what we know today, 
of what Jesus would go on to do with the rest of Passion Week, through his death and resurrection, we can say that Jesus is real and present in our lives today as well. He is here right now in our midst. The presence of God is here. And so what is our reaction to him? If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to meet me in the gospel according to Luke, where together we're gonna begin to investigate the moment that kicks off Palm Sunday. And so we'll go to Luke 19, Start in verse 28, we'll read a little bit, pause, talk, and then so on. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. All right. So here we have Jesus. He's a couple miles away from Jerusalem. He sends two of his disciples up on ahead to retrieve a colt. And I don't know if you caught it, I hope you did, but everything that Jesus said was going to happen, happens. This is probably a good time for you and I to ask the question, why was Jesus even going to Jerusalem in the first place? Well, Jesus, along with many Jewish people at this time, were headed to Jerusalem for their annual celebration of Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover was and continues to be an annual Jewish celebration where the Jewish people remember God's rescue from uh, slavery in Egypt and his deliverance into their freedom. But this Passover was going to be like any other Passover, would not be like any other Passover that they've experienced. This was anything but traditional. For the last three years, Jesus had been preparing his followers for this week that was about to take place, not only for him, but also for them. Through the Gospels, we see Jesus telling his followers that The Son of Man must suffer. He must die. That he was going to go to a place where they could not follow. That he was leaving them. But he also encouraged them and told them to take comfort because these events needed to happen and that God was going to send a helper to help. And so everything was building up to this week. Jesus' ministry was building up to this week where everything that he said would happen, happens. And so the events of Palm Sunday began. The two disciples obeying Jesus and retrieving the colt from the city. Jesus then gets up on the colt and he begins to ride into the town. But something remarkable happens along the way. We'll pick it up in verse 36. As he, Jesus, rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way to Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In this account, it says that as Jesus rode along on the colts, the whole multitude of his disciples spread their cloaks on the road. Now, this is uncommon for us today, but picture this much like a red carpet treatment back then. That may seem strange. Again, Jesus is riding in on on an unridden colt, and they give him a red carpet treatment. You know, why is this? Well, like I've already mentioned, Jesus' disciples, they were Jews. And so growing up, they would have heard and memorized a ton of scriptures that we know as the Old Testament. 
especially when it came to the coming Messiah, God's anointed one, the one who was promised to come through the nation Israel, and he was going to be the one that would save the world. And so as Jewish disciples, they would have been very familiar with a text that was written or spoken about 500 years before this account of Jesus riding on a colt from a prophet named Zechariah. And in Zechariah 9.9, 500 years before this moment that we just read about happens, he says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. This sounds kind of familiar, right? What Jesus did, instructing his disciples to go and retrieve the colt from the town and riding it into Jerusalem, this was not a coincidence whatsoever. This was fulfillment of prophecy, and Jesus is directing the entire thing. He is sending a strong and clear message to all those who are watching. Jesus is righteousness. Jesus is salvation. Jesus was the anointed one, the one that was promised to come, that was going to redeem and restore the world. The presence of the Savior had come to earth, and he was going to go take his place upon the throne of the universe as king. And so with a little context in mind about what these disciples knew and what they saw in front of them, let's again read that last part about what the disciples do as they respond to being in the presence of King Jesus. And as Jesus rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way to Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In the presence of Jesus, the disciples embraced what God was doing. The evidence was now too overwhelming for them. The disciples could no longer contain what God was doing in their midst, and it says that their hearts exploded out into one voice of rejoicing and of praise to God for Jesus. Two summers ago, a friend of mine, Ed Martin, standing back there, we went to the Buffalo Bills training camp. After the practice, it's traditional that the players have to go to the locker room and they have to walk through the stands which is where all of us, the fans, were. And this was our chance as fans uh, to make our voices heard to the players that we admired. And let me tell you, in the presence of the greatest NFL quarterback, Josh Allen, people were losing their minds, mine included. We were rejoicing and we were praising them for their abilities and for all the things that they're committing to do for Buffalo and all the things they've done and all the Super Bowl trophies that we're going to enjoy in the very near future. In the presence of these incredible athletes, our hearts as fans, we couldn't contain it, and they exploded into one loud voice of shouts of praise. This is kind of the image I get of what's happening as Jesus is riding in on this colt, and the disciples, they get it. They have an idea of what's happening. The king is coming to Jerusalem. The king is here. In the presence of Jesus, the disciples could no longer contain it. In light of all that he had done and all that was still left to do, they just lose it. They rejoice and praise. The promised king, from whom God had been working great miracles, powerful miracles, was standing right in front of them. This was the anointed one who had come to save the world. He was the one that was going to right the wrongs, to free the oppressed, to bring clarity to the confused, to shine light into the darkness. It was him. 
He's standing right in front of them, and they just lose it with praise and rejoicing. And they were then moved to physical actions, and they removed their cloaks, and they threw it on the ground to give the king the so rightly deserved red carpet treatment. And so we see that the presence of Jesus' disciples uh, one way. They reacted one way. Let's see how another group of people who were also on the scene reacted to the same event. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so here we're introduced to another group of people known as the Pharisees. And their reaction was the exact opposite of that of the disciples. In the presence of Jesus, the Pharisees rejected what God was doing. The Pharisees, they were an interesting and tragic bunch. They were the respected religious elites of the nation Israel, and they were the ones who were the experts of the law. They knew it better than anybody. They could be found publicly praying, publicly tithing, publicly fasting, publicly teaching. And so on the outside, man, these were the professionals. These were role models. But on the inside, what had happened is they had grown to love the power and the persuasion that they had over others, even more than the God they claimed that they were serving. Now, they would have seen and they would have heard about the same miracles that the disciples did. They knew the scriptures arguably better than the disciples did, and they also spent time with Jesus. But whether it was pride or whether it was envy or they, whatever it was, they were offended by Jesus and his presence in their life, and so they rejected him altogether. The long-awaited king had rode in on a cult that was long foretold, And the Pharisees had the audacity to command Jesus to silence his disciples. Wow. In essence, they told Jesus, do not accept what the people are saying about you. They told God, stop being God. And Jesus' response, it's just so good. He makes it clear, first off, just how appropriate the disciples' claims about him were. Because if the disciples didn't worship him, then the stones next to them would. It's crazy. Because I tell you, these, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And this is a good zinger here by Jesus. By saying this, he's letting the Pharisees know that inanimate creation knew more about what was happening in that moment than they did. Crazy. Tragically, the Pharisees' hearts, they were hardened to the presence of God, and they rejected what he was doing in their midst. Now, I told you that uh, when Charlie, Becca, and I went into that basement, that all three of us had a reaction to that squirrel's presence. Mine was to reject the squirrel and run out of there as fast as I could. Becca's was to embrace it and to take action. Then there was my sweet little three-year-old Charlie, who was caught in the middle of his heroic mother and his cowardly father. He didn't fully understand the presence of the squirrel. He didn't know really what was happening. And so he was caught in the middle of these two loud voices. I was trying to pull him into the lawn as I yelled out to save himself and to leave his mother and get out of there as fast as he could. At the same time, he was being pulled in the other direction by his mom as he watched her tiptoeing around, wielding a rake, and he wanted to go pick up his own and follow suit. So far, we've been reading from the gospel according to Luke. However, there are three other gospels that give an account of this story Some give more information, some give less, but what we know to be true is when you read all of them together, it gives a very full picture. And so I would love for us to jump quickly over to the gospel according to Matthew, 
Because we're going to see it wasn't just the Pharisees and the disciples who were here watching Jesus ride in on the colt. There was another group as well. Matthew 21, verse 8. It says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so we have disciples, we have Pharisees, and now we have a new group called the crowd. And when we read all these accounts together, we can see clearly that it's in Luke's account that we see that it was the multitude of disciples that ignited this frenzy of worship for Jesus and the throwing the cloaks on the road. And so we can reason then, if that's true, that it must have been in Matthew's account that we see that the crowd was then pulled into the disciples' worship of Jesus as they too shouted and rejoiced, and they as well laid down their cloak. They were replicating what they were seeing. They were listening to the voice of the disciples. And for a moment, the crowd embraced what God was doing in their midst, and that's pretty cool. But I wish I could say that the crowd remained steadfast in their embrace of Jesus. But that just wouldn't be true. In the presence of Jesus, the crowd joined the loudest voice, not really knowing what God was up to. For the disciples watching Jesus ride in on this cult, man, that was a great moment as they welcomed in their King Jesus. That day, for the crowd, the disciples were the loudest voice in their life, and so they joined in. Something really tragic happens during Passion Week with this crowd, and for that, we'll go to the gospel according to Mark, Mark 15. At this point, Jesus had already eaten the Last Supper with his disciples. Judas had already betrayed. Peter had already denied three times. And Jesus was now standing trial with Pontius Pilate. It says, now, uh, verse 6, sorry. Now at the feast, Pilate, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered uh, them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived it out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him and crucified. In the book of Luke, it describes the disciples as the ones who ignited the rejoicing, praising, and the cloak paving. In the book of Matthew, we see that the disciples then were the catalyst for the crowd as they joined in to the fanfare of Jesus's triumphant entry to Jerusalem. But in the book of Mark, we see how just a few days later, the chief priests were able to stir up the crowd. And they shouted, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. In the presence of Jesus, the crowd now rejected what God was doing. How can this be? The crowd was the Charlie in my basement. They did not fully understand what was happening. And so for them, they were gravitating to the loudest voice in their life in that moment. In Charlie's case, it was me shouting out to get out of that basement. In the presence of Jesus, the crowd did not know him. Therefore, they couldn't fully embrace him nor fully reject him. They, they flip-flopped. 
So what's the big deal with that? Why does any of this matter? Well, let's go back to the gospel according to Luke. And I want to finish for us the account of Jesus' triumphant entry to Jerusalem. Luke 16, verse 41. And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now there's a lot there that we could unpack and talk about, but we just simply don't have the time. And I would really encourage you to take some time this week and maybe you start here or just uncover the events of Passion Week on your own as you do your own Bible study. But a couple of things we can note is that we have to remember as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, he's hearing the shouts of uh, admiration from his disciples and from the crowd, but he's also at the same time listening to the rejection from the Pharisees. And Jesus being God, he knew that this trip to Jerusalem would be his last because the majority at the end would reject him. The crowd would join the religious elites in calling for his crucifixion, his execution. So he didn't just cry about it. He wept over it. He wept for the nation Israel. God had sent his one and only begotten son. Jesus' presence was real in their lives, and the majority of Israel rejected it. Israel was God's chosen nation whose sole purpose was to prepare the way for Jesus Christ, and they missed it right in front of their face, and they miss it. Heartbreaking. Because of their rejection, Jesus being God, he knew that this would cost the nation Israel as they again turned their backs on him and what he was doing. From our history books, we know that about 50 years later, there's a gentleman called Titus of Rome who leads an army into Jerusalem, and he just devastates it, levels it to the ground exactly as Jesus said. Jesus wept because the nation Israel had run out of time. The presence of the king was here on earth, and his acceptance and his rejection has consequences. Today is Palm Sunday, the day that we remember the events that began Passion Week and all that Jesus did for our world. And so in light of these events, let's go back to that first question that we asked right at the beginning. In the presence of God, what is our reaction to him? In the presence of God, what is our reaction to him? Are we more like the disciples? Are we like the crowd? Or are we like the Pharisees? For the disciples who are listening right now in this room, or wherever you may be listening from, it's worth mentioning that while Jesus wept over the nation Israel and their rejection, the presence of God still was able to burst out into the world. God's will was still done. Evidence of this is you and I sitting in this space halfway across the world nearly 2,000 years later talking about these events. It's spread. This is because the disciples who praised his name on that road to Jerusalem, they kept praising his name for the years to come. They continued embracing all that God was doing, even when it dramatically challenged their thinking or when it cost them greatly or it even took their lives. These disciples and disciples today keep their eyes on Jesus at all times. They're not concerned with the other loud voices in the room because they've found the only voice that matters. And so disciples, are we embracing what God is doing 
And are our, ho- are our hearts exploding in praise as a result? Are we being moved into action like these disciples were at the sight of King Jesus making his triumphant entry? Perhaps today we don't really identify with the disciple, but we kind of identify more as like the Pharisee. And we know that God is up to something and we, we know his plans for us and all of that, but we're, di- we're just rejecting his presence. And the question we could ask is, why are you rejecting his presence? Maybe it's pride. Pride that your way is somehow better than his way, the one who is the creator and designed the way in the first place. So maybe you somehow know best because you've been on planet for X amount of years. Or maybe it's envy, or we like the sin that we're living in. If there's any hope of us moving from Pharisee and going to disciple, from going from rejecter to embracer, we need to humble ourselves before the king. We need to confess our wrongs to him and ask him to soften our hearts. Jesus is the savior. He wants to save. Won't you let him? But maybe today we're here and we're like, I'm not really sure if I'm a disciple or a Pharisee. Maybe there's moments in our lives where we look a lot like a disciple, but then there's moments later when we look a lot like a Pharisee, but then we back over here to the disciple we would say maybe we identify more as the crowd, kind of the flip-flop crew. Perhaps in the presence of Jesus in our lives, we're similar to them. Of all three possible groups, I believe that this is perhaps the most dangerous group to be in. As a disciple, you know your future because you're following him daily. And as a Pharisee, you know your future because you're rejecting him knowingly daily. And as a crowd member, though, you may be kind of stuck in the middle because you don't fully know. As a member of the crowd, we do not know what God is really up to, and so therefore we can't fully embrace him or fully reject him. Instead, we flip-flop through life, listening to the loudest voices and following their leads and their beliefs and their opinions. Why is this so dangerous? Well, similar to the crowd who joined in on the disciples' worship, which was a really good thing, it was only days later that they were now joining in on the rejection of God as well. The problem is that the crowd did not know God, and so therefore they didn't know the difference between embracing and rejecting. That's a problem. We could use the term lukewarm here, and I have been lukewarm so many times in my life. I would love to be able to tell you and confess to you that every single day of my life, I'm the disciple, and I'm out there making other disciples. I I seek to follow him every single day, and while that is true, I strive to be a good follower of Jesus's, and I do believe that his way is better than my own. And I try to keep his voice as primary. There have been many times, many occasions where I've abandoned my call as disciple and I've faded into the crowd crew. And I don't know about you, but sometimes for me, it's like on a Sunday, I listen to the pastor and I'm all jazzed up for Christ. And it's a good day. And then a podcast comes the day after and it's like, ah, I'm kind of questioning some things now. And then I hear something from a politician and now I have a whole different understanding of the world. And then I listen to the words, sage words of my friend who's 29, and I'm like, no, they know what they're talking about. Sometimes I embraced what God was doing, and other times I've openly rejected what. And so here's my encouragement. If that's at all where you find yourself today, and when I find myself in those moments, this is the exact same thing I would tell myself. Mute the noise as quickly as possible. If Jesus' voice is not primary voice in our life, then that's on us. We have allowed other voices to come in and take his place. Jesus died on the cross so that all may know him as Lord 
and Savior. Everyone has an invitation. It's no longer just the religious elite. It's all people. If we've become like the crowd who lost touch with what God is doing and we flip-flop around to whatever voice is speaking loudest to us, we got to make some adjustments ASAP. What Jesus did during Passion Week and Easter is just too significant for us to ignore or to put off on the back burner another day. We need to embrace it. The presence of God is here and now in our midst. And if you can't feel it, hear it, or see it, then you got to mute the 24-7 news cycle. You got to mute the social media platforms you're on. You got to mute the entertainment you consume. You got to mute the various opinions that you list, that you allow to listen, whether it's friend or foe, into your life. We must be determined to get Jesus' voice back as primary so that we can embrace all that He is doing. And this may seem way overly simplistic, but I do think that there's so much value with just muting the noise and getting a chance to just be with Jesus and His Word. I've work in student ministry, and it's something that we're trying to help our kids learn all the time is, if you want to know what God is saying to you, he's already spoke it. You can go to it at any time. And so if you're not currently reading any place in scripture, or you don't have a healthy Bible plan, uh, just pick up a gospel and begin to read through what Jesus did for you. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John is a great place to go. I don't care where you go. Pick up scripture and just let it begin to speak into you. And then find a quiet place and speak back to God through prayer. I've, I've really tried when I'm in the car now to turn off the radio and just have that be some time with God and I. It seems dangerous. I keep my eyes open. Don't worry. But there's so many, I, I've realized in my life, there's just so much noise. Sometimes I realize it, sometimes there's not. And we got to mute the noise. Fast, tithe, pray, read, fellowship, do whatever you have to move, do to move from flip-flopper to embracer, from crowd to disciple. Easter 2021 could be a defining moment in all of our lives as we commit to make the king's voice primary instead of others. So disciples who are here today, I want to encourage you, never underestimate the power of your individual worship and service to God and never underestimate the power of your collective worship and service to God. It matters. It's how his word has continued to spread throughout the whole world over thousands of years, and God is continuing to use that method to change the world. Keep going. Those of us in this room who would identify more with the Pharisees, I want you to know that God wept for you. He died willingly for you. Humble your hearts and turn to him this morning in repentance. Seek his salvation. And for those of us in this room who would identify with the crowd, it's time to get serious about our faith journey. Take your next step and get Jesus' voice back at all costs and make it your primary. Mute out the others. His is the only one that matters. Let him breathe clarity and peace on you today. Now, these are tough things to ask for, and so we would be foolish not to go to God and ask for his help. Let's pray. God, just having grown up in the church, uh, grown up as a follower of yours for a long time. It's very easy to read the accounts of, of Palm Sunday and Passion Week and what you did on, on the cross and your resurrection and to just read it as familiar. But God, there's something so fresh about this this morning. Lord, we've kind of been given a challenge uh, to identify ourselves as Pharisee, disciple, or crowd. And I hope my brothers and sisters can see the value of the disciple the value of following you. 
God, you made a way so that's possible. I thank you so much for it. I pray that you would meet each and every one of us where we are this morning, that you would help us take our next step toward you, whatever that may be. Give us the courage to mute noise. Give us the understanding to identify what it is that we allow into our brains that's feeding us, that's driving us, that's motivating us. And if it's not you, God, may we do something about it today. Lord, may we boldly go out into the world and praise your name, worship you, follow you, serve you, God. Lord, use this time as we just listen to a song that's powerful, whether we sing it, whether we talk to you in prayer, whether we just get on our knees in submission to who you are, whatever it may be, use these moments to just meet us and help us respond. We love you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.